This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Help Wanted. And the author is David Scott. And David joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Well, this is going to be a fascinating journey, this murder mystery serial killer. We're going to learn more about the main characters and this uh, clever, as you point out, serial killer. Uh, let me read what you've written in, about your book just to set the stage uh, with a little bit more detail. You say, two ordinary people become a crime-fighting duo as they become entangled in the sinister games of a clever serial killer who hides behind a facade of respectability. And, of course, at the same time, as their feelings for each other grow, they use the Sherlock Holmes deductive reasoning process to pursue the killer to an exciting and climatic ending. And we'll find more about, find out more about deductive reasoning process. I think we all are kind of uh, in awe of Sherlock Holmes. And of course, that's a great, a great uh, kind of angle in your story. But first of all, David, tell us a little bit about your background and then why you decided to write this book. Well, right now I am a human resources manager. I live in the Los Angeles area. And uh, I enjoy jazz and classical music. And uh, my late wife, Wendy, she was the catalyst for me really to write the book. I'd always wanted to write. And uh, the idea just sort of came to me in a minor epiphany, if you will. And uh, then I just, on weekends, uh, I, st I just started to write it out and uh, finished it. And hopefully it's a great read for folks. Well, I think we're fascinated by so many uh, TV shows, movies have this kind of angle to it. Of course, you know, action-packed, always the twists and turns. And in this case, though, I, I guess, you know, we're talking about ordinary people can do extraordinary things. So uh, Peter Dale and Darcy Garcia, the uh, main characters, ordinary people? Yes, I feel that the uh, I created the characters of uh, Peter Dell and Darcy Garcia in a way that the average person can identify with. As, as you said, it's, it's just two ordinary people, and they, due to circumstances beyond their control, they're forced to do some extraordinary things in their attempt to catch this killer. Well, give us a little background on this serial killer. What is going on here? Well, it's, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but this, uh, this fellow, uh, hides behind a facade of respectability. He's, uh, someone who you wouldn't think, from a profile perspective, would indeed be a serial killer. And that's what's so insidious about the whole situation. And he proactively, uh, uh brings uh, Peter Dell and Darcy Gar Garcia into this, uh, web of, of intrigue. Uh, for his whatever, you know, disturbed reasons he has. So he's the one that's choreographing, orchestrating uh, this whole scenario, and that's why they're, they're innocent until a series of, you know, through deductive reasoning, they figure out, hey, this, because they really, he, the killer really wants them to figure it out. He's playing games with them. That's <laughs> That's what it is. So what murder victim type does this serial serial killer focus on? Well, it's uh, primarily successful people, and that's a clue that uh, they pick up on. Because he actually, uh, they are able to uh, acquire uh, some cold case files, okay, of homicides going back, uh, in some cases, years and years. And they start to connect the dots. Now, I won't go into how they acquired these files. That's just part of the overall flow of the plot. But it, it's all part of this uh, this the setup that this guy is doing 
uh, for the two main characters. And I might I might add that as Peter and Darcy uh, as they get involved in this, there's sort of a parallel plot or story of romance because it really is help wanted is part romance and, and part crime. And uh, and while using their deductive reasoning to discover the the identity uh, of the killer, they find their emotions heating up along the way. Because Help Wanted really fuses romance and danger together, and, and that was a you know one thing I wanted to do. So it's sort of a parallel development. At the same time they are uncovering the identity of this serial killer, they do find that you know they are becoming closer emotionally. So how would you describe Sherlock Holmes's deductive reasoning process? That's what they're using. It, well, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, they went from the general to the specific. And actually, it's Darcy who uh, has been learning about in a class she's been taking. She's a, uh, an administrative assistant in a, in a police department. She's been taking a class called Fault Tree Analysis, which is uh, it's actually a recognized technique that's used often in engineering to determine you know, if there's a, a circuit failure. Okay, so you got to end up using, I won't go into the methodology, but it's how you go from the general to the specific to, to eliminate all possible reasons why something happens. So she begins to apply this technique with Peter's help. He gets involved, too. She sort of says, hey, let's, let's check this all out. And uh, using this technique, which is uh, not unlike you know deductive reasoning in general, and I'm sure that's what Sherlock Holmes, yeah, that's Sherlock Holmes technique as well, um, that's how they they eliminate all these possibilities, and the only answer left, no matter how unlikely, that's the answer. And uh, if folks love the new show, Elementary, I think that's on CBS, it's an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson. There's a, I don't remember the characters' names, but it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big hit now. Um, and it's very popular. So people who like the show Elementary, uh, I think Help Wanted will fit right in. And where does it take place? It takes place in uh, contemporary Los Angeles. Why did you choose day. L.A.? Well, I live here, uh, and uh, Los Angeles is actually, uh, you know, if you like uh, L.A. Confidential, the movie L.A. Confidential, and there's a, a new one out, Gangster Squad, uh there's a there's been a lot of it's been the venue for a lot of shows like Dragnet, for example, and uh, Adam Twelve in the past. So it, it was just convenient for me to use uh, Los Angeles as a setting. What causes someone in in your mind? Obviously, you've created the mind of this serial killer. What causes someone to commit cold blooded murder? Well, that's the question, and uh, actually, uh, in the book, Darcy and Peter Muse on this very topic. For example, I believe there's an exchange of dialogue about Adolf Eichmann. He was the notorious um, Nazi during World War II. He was captured in Argentina, and you know they 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 pose these questions: What does cause somebody to uh, to do? You know, horrific, horrific things. I think that's still an open question. I mean, maybe only psychiatrists or psychoanalysts can really figure these things out. I don't know if we really know the answer. Is it environmental? Is it genetic? Is it, uh, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, they actually explore this question as they review these these uh, cold cases that they uh, become familiar with in, in the process of identifying this killer. It's a it, it's an interesting question, and it's a, it's a it's really it's something I'm not sure if we really know the answer to precisely. So you've got some, of course, you got a lot of murder scenes are discussed. How many murders are we talking about? Well, um, I don't recall exactly, but it's, uh, a bunch. it's well over a dozen. A yeah, dozen. It's a, <laughs> It's a long series of unsolved crimes mm. that uh, that are on the LAPD, you know, case files, and uh, so it's a lot. And 
at the point that Darcy and Peter are going through all these, it's not necessarily recognized that it's by one individual. So you have lots of gunplay, lots of action. This is an action-packed book. A lot of folks love that kind of storyline. It's action-packed. The gunplay doesn't really play out really toward the end, but there's a lot of suspense and intrigue, and uh, this guy starts to play mind games with him. So I would say, yeah, there's a, a, the idea that it would be a page turn, and that's, that's what my objective was in writing the book. You know, people would, would really want to find out what happens next. But yeah, uh, particularly in the climax of the book, that will definitely come and that will be a part of it. And Darcy Garcia, female and Hispanic. Correct. And uh, she meets Peter. Actually, they may, they meet uh, on a ride sharing, which uh, in, in in Los Angeles is something that people sometimes do to save on, on gas and uh, you know uh, wear and tear on their cars for long commutes. And that's how their relationship uh, uh, de- you know began and, and how it de- it developed. So they're kind of boyfriend girlfriend. There's a little bit of of uh, ambiguity or ambivalence between them in the beginning, maybe more on Peter's part, but uh, uh, this whole situation really brings them together. Well, I'm As sure... I said, it's a parallel development plot in, in, in the course of the story. Exactly. Very important part of it. And, of course, when you have that kind of relationship, uh, it really creates a lot of emotions when they're... they're I'm sure there's times when... Their lives are on the line. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, again, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, they they do realize, there's there's a point where they realize that their lives are in danger. And uh, that really they've got to depend on each other. And, of course, they've got some uh, a little bit of a support system that they, they friends that they can, uh, that they can call on. Um, during key parts of, of the story, but uh, the bottom line, it's uh, it's Peter and Darcy against the killer. And eventually, Peter meets with the killer face-to-face? Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, that all goes into the, the what I hope is a climactic ending, but I'm not going to sure. talk about that too much. But yes, the, there is the traditional, if you will, uh, face-to-face meeting. Um, toward the end of the book, in, in the context of uh, uh, everyone knows who everyone is. And the ending of Help Wanted, uh, you set the stage for a sequel. Yes, I do, and I'm working on one now. Um, uh, Darcy and Peter, their relationship uh, evolves further. And uh, again, I don't want to give too much away in, in the sequel, but I will say that... Uh, they are going to open a detective agency based on the um, the uh, fame, or maybe that's not the right word, based on their success uh, in solving this issue. Uh, they realize they actually have a talent for this. So that's uh, it, exactly right. I have set the stage for a sequel, which is in work now. Unsolved murders in Los Angeles, cold case homicides. And, of course, Peter Dale and Darcy Garcia. Uh, they're, on, they're tracking this serial killer, and at the same time, uh, they are falling in love. So a great murder mystery as well as a romance novel, Help Wanted. And David Scott is the author. David, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on uh, Amazon.com. And when, if you were to go on Amazon.com, you might want to put in the keywords help wanted and then my name, David Scott. If you do that, it'll, it'll come up. Maybe you click on the uh, books link first. But it's pretty intuitive when you go with people who deal with uh, Google and stuff. So anyway, help wanted David Scott. And um, there's a Kindle version. Uh, I believe it's $3.99. And a paperback version. Uh, I think I last checked $14.95. And that's how you can get it. Thank you, David, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it very much. 
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Loving Yourself, The Mastery of Being Your Own Person. And the author is Dr. Sherry Campbell, and Dr. Sherry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Sherry. Hello, how is everybody? I hope all's well. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you with us. We're all going to learn a lot about loving ourselves, and that is so important, and we'll get into the details. But first, let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage in a little broader way. You say, if you love yourself, your life will shift. You will stop waiting on peace and happiness and begin to learn to create it for yourself. So peace and happiness isn't going to happen by itself. We've got to make it happen. That sounds uh, like good common sense, but we often don't understand how to do it, I guess, right? Absolutely. The majority of people are looking for someone else or something else outside of them to do that. I think we're largely over-medicated, and I think that we're big into blame and maybe not mm. taking such responsibility. And, and in that way, you, you, you can't stand toe-to-toe with the stuff that you need to take responsibility for. And those things are your issues. So whether you feel someone gave them to you, if they're in you, they're your issues to take care of. And um, they're great learning experiences. So my thought is that if people can love themselves and step toe-to-toe to their self-doubts and their insecurities and, and all those things, they will see that they can change those and then change their ideas of the world and increase their self-confidence. And you can't do that without hard work. It's going to come in the form of something easy. Right, and blame is just a wall. I guess when we blame others, we just create a wall to our own issues. But first, we before we get into talking more about those important, important, uh, I guess, ingredients for happiness, let's find out about you. Let's tell us about your background, your professional background, and why you decided to write the book. Well, I'm a psychologist with a PhD, and I have um, over 19 years of clinical training and experience. I'm a nationally recognized expert on lots of media sites on the web, and um, I see 40 people every week in a private practice, and I'm a mom. I, I just chose to write the book because I was seeing that the way that I do therapy is a lot more interactive and coaching-based, and really getting into the practical way to heal yourself and I wanted to expand what I do in my office out into the world because I typically have a waiting list to get in here. And as I decided to write the book, I realized the best way to guide someone through their own psyche was by telling my own story 
and letting them see it as if they're watching a movie that they could relate to that maybe wasn't their own story, but they could relate to people-pleasing or low self-esteem or feeling rejected or feeling bullied or whatever. And sometimes when we see ourselves through another person's story, it's easier for us to heal. And so that's why I wrote the book, and the book so far is doing fantastic. It's got great reviews on Amazon, and it's doing what I want it to do. So that's the gift. You're telling it like it is. It's autobiographical. It's real. It's raw. It's all in one. Yes, it's real. It's my story backed up by self-help and theory and practical solutions to ask. You know, if you ask your mind a question, it's going to want to give you an answer. And we're very smart creatures emotionally and intellectually. And if you can just apply all of that to mastering yourself, you're going to get better. But most of us read books to be the masters of someone else, (laughs) telling someone else how to change. And we need to start reading on how to make ourselves change. And then your life will shift because you'll start to draw in healthier people to your life. So as you fix you, your world will fix itself. And that's really the best way to do it. So how does someone love themselves? Well, you have to take care of yourself uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So if you love yourself, you're going to make sure that you're healthy. You're going to make sure that the, the company you keep is healthy for you. You're going to start to eliminate the things that you're tolerating you're going to start to say no when you need to say no. That's one of the key ways to learn to love yourself is to let people know where you start and they stop. And most of us are tolerating people that we're uncomfortable with, but we don't want to make them upset or mad, so we continue to tolerate them. And when we do this, we're just giving ourselves away. So when you learn to say no when you need to say no, then people have an idea of who you are. You become more solid. And then each time you say no, you're achieving something you never thought you could, so you increase in self-confidence. And happiness is a byproduct of achieving. So learning to do that is just a very simple way. It's not hard to love yourself. It just takes the application. And um, saying no is one of the number one ingredients to doing that. And most of us don't. We're, we're conflict aversive. We're afraid to make someone upset. We don't want to make up people upset. We want them to be happy all the while sacrificing ourselves. And then we have depression and we're eating too much and we're not eating enough and we don't feel life is worth living because we're not loving ourselves. We'll say no for our children, but we won't say no for ourselves. So it's, it's, it's simple and it's practical, and that's what I love about my book. And you say that we must find the meaning in our suffering. I'll explain that. If you cannot find the meaning in your suffering, um, you're going to have despair because you're not going to have an understanding of maybe what is the bigger picture, why am I suffering like this. Um, I had a pretty tumultuous childhood, and I could have gotten stuck in victimology, and I could have gotten stuck in blame, and then I would never have the life that I have. I would be full of resent. And um, if you can find the meaning, how you grew from your suffering, that you wouldn't be who you are without your suffering, um, you won't have any despair. You won't have any insight. So every hard lesson that you have in your life, I call it a little life class. You enter the class, let's say it's a divorce. You enter that class, it's painful. You don't like the way you feel. You'd rather avoid it. But once you go through that and you get through the divorce and you face it, you're increasing your confidence all the way along. You're doing things that you never thought you can do. You're out of your comfort zone. And then you look back and you go, oh, my God, I'm so glad I went through that because I really wouldn't be me without that. And um, I see that every day here. I see it in my life. I see it everywhere that you can take even the worst situations from childhood abuse to rape or whatever, and you can make it not punishment, but you can turn it into purpose. What is your purpose from this? How can you help someone else? How can you grow from what you did? So when we are willing to, I guess, somehow we are courageous enough to tackle these things head on and realize that we're unique. You even say unique as a snowflake. Every snowflake, as we know, is different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we throw ourselves into categories. We kind of lump ourselves in with all the rest and and we Mm -hmm. just get lost. Absolutely. I think um, when we lump ourselves in as I'm an abuse victim or I have depression or I have whatever, we have learned helplessness. We learn to live that label instead of learning to express whatever our higher purpose is. Um, there's too many miracles that I've witnessed in my own life and in those of my patients where I've seen them 
make something beautiful of a total tragedy in their lives and they're out in the world helping other people that have gone through the same thing or they've just become healthy in themselves and so everyone that they touch becomes inspired by them. And um, being here is about being happy and you have to create it. It's not a given. So if you can learn and take your life as it's a series of classes, one challenge after another, you're here to grow and that's kind of how you develop a spiritual sense of who you are and being able to see the bigger picture. I guess that's why someone said happiness is a journey, not a destination. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, sometimes when we reach the destination, like a goal, and we reach the destination, there's a sadness. (laughs) You know, there's post-wedding blues, there's post-baby blues. Uh, It's the journey where all of the magic is, and that's because you're growing. And that's what you're supposed to do. That's the one thing you're supposed to do here is to find not the punishment in what you've gone through, but the purpose in it. So you're going to help us really take responsibility for our lives. I mean, that is the key issue here. You can't blame others. You can't give it to others. There's no way out of it, or we're just going to be miserable. Absolutely. In fact, psychological health and maturity is synonymous with being responsible. I've not yet met an irresponsible, happy, successful person. (laughs) So... Um, it's really important to be responsible. And a lot of people don't like the word. It sounds boring. It sounds like it's not fun. But, you know, it depends on what you do. I mean, I feel everyone should be reading something. Every to every day, someone should be reading something that's inspiring you to your next level. I'm an avid reader, an avid studier of entrepreneurs, of self-help, of, of whatever, because I only got this life. This is it. This is what I know that I have. And it's up to me what I make of it or what I don't make of it. So, yes, we have to take 100% responsibility. And that can feel daunting. It's much easier to not. You know, it takes a lot of effort to climb up a mountain, but it takes nothing to fall down it. And um, if you want to stand out, you really want to be happy, which is what I think the majority of people want. You have to take responsibility. And you don't have to take it in a big lump. You can take it one step at a time. I need to be responsible here, or I want to be happy. So what can I do today that's going to make that happen? And you take the actions that back up those thoughts. How do you convince someone that you can get through the pain? I mean, there is, the sunshine is there after the storm. I mean, how do you get people to step into the darkness and try to, you know, find the light? Well, what I tell people usually is that the light does not come through the light. Um, The light comes through the dark. So, um what I do all the time with myself or my patients is I, I, I break everything down for the brain into taking it one step at a time, but you've got to give yourself permission to feel. You know, uh, we create disorder in our lives by being controlling, and when we have our feelings and the emotions come up and we don't like them, the first thing we want to do is, oh, my God, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to deal with this. And what happens is that emotion grows inside. And you may be able to avoid it for the moment, but it will continue to resurface. You know, I always tell my patients that if it's coming up, it wants to come out. You know, if you're crying, you're not one step further in the pain. You're one step out of the pain. You're releasing it. And it's kind of knowing the biomechanical way that emotions work. If you give yourself permission to feel and you can be gentle with yourself, then then pain isn't so scary. If you go, oh, my God, I'm going to attack this, I'm going to get into my pain, you're going to overwhelm yourself and you're not going to ever want to do that again. And if you avoid it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you're growing this monster and it's attracting all the wrong people into your life and you continue to have experiences that are provoking your pain so it will finally come up. So I say emotions are coming in so they can pass through. They don't want to stay. They want to travel with you. They want to teach you so that you can let them go. You say if there's any controversial aspect of your book, it would be how poor parenting can impact the self-esteem of a child. Boy, it's, it's, how do you be the best parent? I mean, we all have flaws. We all have weaknesses. That's a tough area, isn't it? Oh, it's very tough. Um, If you didn't have good parenting, um, like I didn't, I didn't have horrible parenting, but I certainly had self-absorbed parents. And I learned that other people's happiness was my responsibility, and I lived that for too long. Um, and I've made some, some of the mistakes my parents have made, so it humanizes them to me. And um, I think that being a good parent is you've got to take from your childhood maybe what didn't work and become smart about that 
and and apply it differently to your child. So with my child, I don't parent her behavior. I parent her emotions that are driving the behavior. And I have a really good rapport with her, and I also spend quality time with her. I mean, to be a really good parent, you need to give your kids time, attention, and listening. And the five most important words you can ask them are, what are you feeling? And I didn't get that. And those mm. simple things, those the lack of the emotional nurturing that I got created in me a lot of self-esteem, and I had to build my world around my parents, desperately trying to make them happy, satisfying their needs until I got really angry. <laughs> and then I went through that phase. But uh, being a parent is about being responsible, if we get back to that word, and it's about knowing yourself. If you don't love yourself, it's going to be very difficult for you to teach your children how to do that. You see yourself as helping people along their path, even saving them. And that's important because, uh, as you put it, just a few people can have a great influence on us. It doesn't take a lot. It it takes that one special person or that one special message or that one special book. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot. It takes you being open. You know, uh, there's messages being sent to you every day, whether it's in the next song you hear in, in a quote that you read on Facebook or someone that tweets something or maybe even one of my patients will say something to me and it will be exactly what I needed to hear. But see, I'm open. A lot of people that are not healed are closed-minded and defensive and they're kind of going at life instead of going with life. And so it doesn't take much. If you're open, all the right messages, all the right people, circumstances, events will show up in your life to bring you the messages that you need to carry forward. So it's about surrendering and being open, and it doesn't take. I mean, I've had two pinnacle people in my life in the book. I had a lady who tucked me into bed one night, and I had a family that sort of adopted me during my angry phase, and those three people were absolutely life-changing for me, but I was open to that. I needed it, so I was very open to it. We've been listening to Dr. Sherry Campbell. She is the author of her book, Loving Yourself, The Mastery of Being Your Own Person. Dr. Sherry, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go on to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or to AuthorHouse.com, and it's available there. It's in Kindle form, hardback, and soft cover. um, And read the reviews. I encourage the people to read the reviews so that they know what they're getting uh, in the book, so they know if it's the right book for them. But definitely, if you want your life to be better and you want to feel like you have, you know, self-control or more control in your life um, where you feel more stable, this is the book for you and it will help you and it will love you cozy all the way through it as well. You will never feel alone reading this book. You'll be nurtured all the way through. Thank you so much, Dr. Sherry, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off? Fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Togginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. 
Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Ask Dr. Blackjack, and the author is Sam Barrington, and Sam joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Sam. Well, good morning, Steve. How are you today? Well, we're going to learn about uh, learn a lot about the art of playing blackjack. Um, uh, is it art or is it science? What is which is it? I think it's more of a science. All right. I mean, it, it, all all your percentages are there. All you got to do is follow them. Well, Sam has been playing blackjack for over thirty years, and uh, he's got some real insight into the game. And his book is all about uh, ten basic steps to master, and they aren't hard to overcome. As he writes, uh, you, you can literally come out ahead in the game of blackjack, and that's why he's sharing these tips with us. Anyone with a little knowledge of the game can master all ten steps. This is what Sam says, in one day, all 10 steps are in my book. No smoke or mirrors, no tricks, just good, solid fundamentals. So I guess that's why you said it's a science, real fundamentals. It's, uh, like I say, in, in the, the book I've just outlined, uh, we took the basic strategy and just perfected it a little bit more, but more the whole thing focuses on more of your money management, when to get in and when to get out. Huh. Okay. Don't uh, yeah. don't get greedy, and don't throw more money after bad money trying to get it back. You just take your lumps and move on when you when you have a bad time and and hit the next table. Well, and at one time, how many casinos barred you from playing? Well, at one time it was forty six, but I worked really hard at it and got up to forty seven <laughs> before before I got back into to all of them. Before they let you back in, huh? Uh, they did. They did. It uh, It it took an attorney and, uh, and no no lawsuits or anything like that, but they had to talk to my people, had to talk to their people. You know how that goes. Well, first, before we find out how you got started in all this, it uh, sounds like if you're so darn good at this, why wouldn't you do this full time? God, I've been asked that a lot of times, and I was going to do that. Uh, that's before the barring started, and... I was just having some some really good years, and I thought, God, I just love this game. I, you know, I love the excitement. I think I might do this full time. And then all of a sudden, here I started getting thrown out of casinos. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, you know, and it went from casino to casino and on down the road, and pretty soon you run out of places to play. And if you can't play in a casino, what are you going to do? I mean, if you take up that's like if you become a professional golfer, but they won't let you on the golf course. <laughs> you're you're kind of hung out to dry. So I thought, well, I still enjoy this game. I'll just uh, I'll just be a really good recreational gambler and keep my real job. So that I just didn't need to be barred out and have no uh, no money coming in. So that's I gave up the idea of becoming a professional gambler. And you've got some advice for others who may consider being a professional gambler. We'll learn more about that. But let's go back. Let's go back. How did this all start? What's this? How did all this fascination and obviously much more than just fascination, a, a real determined uh, hobby of, you know, almost like you just explained, almost a career. But, you know, it, it, what, it seemed to just uh, completely take over your life. Well, uh, the blackjack is, is my full-time hobby. Like some guys golf or snow ski or fish. Blackjack is what I do for a hobby. It relaxes me. And I guess it was back in about 1982. First experience I had gambling, a uh, friend invited me out to Vegas with him, and we went out. And of course, that was the, the mothership back then. Nothing, there wasn't much gambling outside of Vegas. and I was wondering like a kid in a candy shop. And my friend wandered off there. Well, he come back, and he had this huge sum of money in his hands. 
I think it was like $135, which was a lot of money to me back then. I said, where'd you get all that damn money? He said, playing blackjack. And I'd never seen a blackjack table before, so I wonder. And I watched, and it was, uh, you know, a hand-dealt game. And these people, the, the dealer was throwing out cards, and people were putting out money. The dealer was paying. The, the, the players were pulling money. They were getting cards, not getting cards, and not a word was said. It was all through the sign language on the table. And I thought, this is like being a member of some secret cult. And all the, a secret handshake, and all, you know, I was just mesmerized by this game. And I went back, and when I got home, I thought, i got to learn how to play this game. Well, everybody I talked to knew how to play the game. But they all knew how to play it wrong. So I bought books and videos, and I studied, and I recorded hands, and and just found out you know, a lot of these things were myths that people played. And I just uh, got to where I, I was playing real good. And... Uh, I decided, okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to hit the casino. Well, the, when I hit the casino, I found out it was a lot different playing at a live table than it was sitting in the confines of your home at the kitchen table. I mean, you had the, the jingle of the slot machines and drunks and smoke and cocktail waitresses, and I lost my butt. And I went back and home, and I thought, now, what did I do wrong? And the whole thing was my money management was all wrong. I thought I'd just play to catch up, play to catch up, and then I come across this little deal of charting all these hands that I played, and I come up with a theory that was that was almost like uh, oh, a, a car manufacturer when they're they're working on an engine. You know, you you get an RPM range going, and at a certain point you reach your maximum horsepower, and those two lines cross. So anything you go above that in RPMs, you risk blowing the engine and you don't achieve any more horsepower. And I found out when I played, you could get to a certain point of losing, and it only got worse, or you could get to a certain point of winning, and when you hit that, then a downward spiral would would come into effect. So I just had those two lines where they crossed, and that's how I started playing, and that was real successful for me. So that's that's been my strategy on blackjack, is knowing the correct plays to play every hand, don't get yourself in a tight, don't get greedy, win you a little bit of money, and move on. If you lose a little money, don't cry about it, just uh, chalk it up and keep accurate records of what you're doing, and you'll end up okay. You said that for 30 years, you have painstakingly played and recorded thousands and thousands of hands. Now, what do you mean? How did you record these hands? Well, when I played, I would, uh, let's say if you got a pair of tens, you know, against a certain hand, or uh, some of the bigger things that, that people worry about is, do I hit a 12 against a certain card? Or do I split aces? Or do I take even money on my blackjack? Or do I buy insurance on a blackjack? And and the other is, when do I double down on an 11? And do I split eights? You know, these are, most people know all the little, that's kind of like the, the 10 plays you really need to know, even though they don't come into effect very often. But those are the ones that will kill you when to split, when to double down, take insurance, not take insurance. And so I've done thousands and thousands of hands and recorded it in just one of these IE's charts with a pencil. And what happens when I do this? What happens when I do this? And I would go through thousands of hands to see how it worked out in the long run. You know, there would be spikes on certain things when, oh, you think, oh, this is not going the way it should. But then all of a sudden it just levels out. And at the end, you can, you can see what's the best play. But in the long run, where are you going to get your money? So that's, that's what I concentrated on more than anything else was the odd plays that people had a hard time understanding. Some might say that you're a, Card counter, is that the term? Uh, yeah, I, I don't uh, put a lot of stock into card counting. Uh, I've done it, and I didn't do as good card counting as I've done with my plain old basic system. And besides that, you know, if you're sitting there at a you know, $100 table or a $500 or a $1,000 table or whatever you want to, if you're, if you're playing $5 a hand, $10 a hand, all of a sudden you up it to $500, well, you're going to have all the pit bosses and all the cameras watching you. 
And I found out when you start doing that, they might deal you one hand. And then the dealer will shuffle up, you know, from the directions of pit boss, and, or they'll bring over new cards and shuffle. They'll change dealers. They'll do anything to keep you from counting the cards. So and, you get one or two hands, and the, your card counts over there. And this book, as you put it, uh, is... Well, you say you simplify these hands and explain it in layman's terms of how and why the hand should be played. Uh, uh, a lot of books, uh, you found these how-to books on blackjack, uh, as you put it, were so boring, or the author made them seem so complex that it's just really hard to read, but you're, you've really boiled it down to a real simple way to explain it. Yeah, it's... I think the best I had it with one time was a, a really good friend of mine. He's a, a really good amateur player in blackjack, and we talk a lot. He said, "He said I bought a half a dozen of these blackjack books, and after 20 or 25 pages, I'm so bored or confused that I just can't get through them. He said, and I, I read yours. He said, I picked it up, and I read it start to finish without putting it down. He said, and as I was reading it, he said, it was like, you were sitting across the desk from me, explaining it to me in simple details, in layman's terms, how to play. He said, and on some of the more complicated hands, you had a little story you threw in, or you know, something that happened at a casino. That it was almost like a word association. I would remember that story, and I would remember what play I was supposed to make. He said, this is so simple, it's unbelievable. So that's that's what I try to do, is try to get a book that that a guy that plays blackjack, he can get this book and advance his play. He's never going to be a millionaire playing blackjack. I, I don't know. I've been in thousands of casinos, and I don't remember meeting a lot of millionaires playing blackjack. But uh, you, you can just stretch your gaming dollar a little further, have more fun, get you a few perks from the casino, you know, get the nice rooms and nice meals. They'll want to get their money back, so they'll throw a few things at you. And it works out really well. I, you know, I, I still have fun at it. What advice would you give someone who thinks, well, I'm going to be a, become a professional blackjack player, a professional gambler? Have a whole bunch of money. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of money. But this, I wouldn't advise anybody to try to be a professional gambler. If, uh, the only professional gamblers I've known that made any money were bookies. And they're on the other side of the fence. I've, I've known some of the, I guess, best horse handicappers I've ever known, and, and they can break even, which is a good deal, or make a little money, but, but not much, not enough to retire. I've had a few of the friends that tried to retire and become professional handicappers. That didn't work. And a few being poker players, and it's a tough life. It's not as glamorous as you see in the movies. It's, you know, most of the time these, these guys are sleeping in their cars and, Eating at the Waffle House, they're not having the big steaks and the and the big sweets like you see in the Rain Man. But I tell you, forget about being a professional gambler. Just if you like playing blackjack or if you like playing poker, whatever it is, just become extremely good at that game and have a lot of fun at it. Why would you share all your blackjack secrets? Well, they're not really secrets. I mean, it, it's all out there and. You know, I, I think being a blackjack player is not any different than if, if you're a pitcher in baseball or you're a quarterback. I mean, if, if, if you're really good at something, you want to share it with somebody else, and you want to see them go further with it. And maybe they'll advance it even further than you did, and you can say, God, you know, I helped that guy get started. Now look what he done. You know, it's not uh, it's not like being a magician where you want to keep all your secrets inside this. You know, I like to share this because I've seen people at the tables and they were so confused. And, you know, I never give advice at a table unless I'm asked. And sometimes these guys say, I never would have thought of that. So it just, it kind of gives you uh, all a little pride in your game if you can help somebody advance their game a little bit. So that's the only reason I do that. And you put your hand on a Bible and say all these stories are true. All of them. Because, you know, it's like uh, fish stories, you know, <laughs> gambling stories. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you, when you pull that fish out of the water, it was six <laughs> inches long. Yeah. 
By the time you got back home and telling your friends and after you ate it, it was at least 18 inches long. So when you gamble, you really got to afford to lose some money so you don't mess with uh, the grocery money or the rent money or the house payment. or. No, you need to have you one, what I would call it a purse, you know, kind of like in the horse racing. They, they run for the purse, and you need to have you a purse dedicated to nothing but your gambling funds. And you don't you don't buy your your food out of that. You don't buy you know uh, gasoline out of that. That's strictly for your money. And you you don't take money out of it to to buy little trinkets for your wife or girlfriends. Or you know if you have a good day, you don't go down to the strip bar and buy a bunch of lap dances and things like that. you. And you got to keep track of where you are at all times. I mean, every time I get up and leave a table, I've got a chart and it, it's in the book that I can record down how far I was ahead. And if I got behind, how far I got behind and over to the side, what my net chip count was. And I keep a running total that every time I go gambling, end of the day, I know exactly how many chips I won or lost. I know exactly which casino I played at, whether it was a single deck, double deck, shoe. I know how much I tipped. And I keep a, a, a running total so I know where I am at any time during the year. And that just, that just helps me stay on top of my game. We've been listening to Sam Barrington. He is the author of his book, Ask Dr. Blackjack. Sam, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to my website, uh, com. Or you can find it on Amazon.com. It's uh, available at Books a Million, uh, Barnes and Noble, and IndieBand. So there's, you can get it just about anywhere now. Thank you for being with us on Author Talk. It was a pleasure. I hope to speak with you again soon. <laughs>